Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for March 14th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. There's a $260 million settlement in a whistleblower lawsuit. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman gives us the details. Congress has passed a $1.5 trillion spending bill preventing a government shutdown. The funding keeps the lights on through September. Matthew Albrecht covers that and more in his legislative update. And we'll hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson, and healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Good news report for the folks at Sutter Health. The California federal jury cleared Sutter Health in a $411 million certified class action lawsuit on Friday. Allegedly, the hospital used restrictive contracts with payers to illegally boost prices and overcharge employers and individuals. The jury said that Sutter had not violated antitrust laws. We have a great deal of news to report, and of course, we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let me start again with some audit news. NGS posted the results of an audit of botulinum toxin used in 2021 in their jurisdiction. They don't give a lot of details, but since the codes they audited were part of the CMS outpatient hospital prior authorization program, we have to assume they were auditing its use in physician offices and surgery centers where there is no prior authorization available. Now, they audited over 1,000 claims and there was a 78% denial rate. That's pretty bad. Now, as always, the real question is, did doctors use the Botox for medically necessary indications, but simply documented it poorly, or did they actually use it when it wasn't appropriate? We'll never know. But what I do know is that with a 78% denial rate, CMS have, should have put in place a prior authorization process for Botox used at physician offices and not in the hospital. Moving on, it's been a little while since I've been able to criticize one of the QIOs, but the time has come. Last week, Keypro sent out a memo that they will be no longer be calling hospitals with the, with the results of the patient's appeal, but instead will only be faxing the results to the hospital. They claim that, quote, this steam, streamlined approach will continue to provide instant communications to keep providers informed. Um, so instead of carrying your portable phone with you, waiting for the call, you now have to lug around the fax machine. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. But there's actually a bigger problem. Section 200.4.3 of the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Chapter 30, requires the QIO to notify the beneficiary, the hospital, and the physician of their decision by telephone. That means their streamlined approach to save them time is non-compliant. Now, don't you all worry, I've already tattled to CMS about this, so I expect Keypro will still be telephoning you with their decisions. Now, we're about a month away from the National Physician Advisor Conference in Austin. 
First, I'm really excited to be presenting with Dr. Erica Reamer. That's going to be a great session. But I'm also really upset. When this conference was small, every attendee got to attend every session. But now there are concurrent sessions, and that means making choices. In fact, I'm giving a talk about observation at the same time that Dr. Scott Cooley is presenting on the role of the physician advisor in transfer centers. Too bad I can't program my bobblehead to give my talk so I can go listen to Scott. And the rest of the conference is similar. So many good talks by real experts. If you haven't registered, do it now because early bird pricing ends tomorrow. And if you are going, be sure to stop by and say hi. I'll be the one wearing a mask. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Well, calendar year 2022 physician fee schedule is in full effect. The proposals, which came out in the summer of 2021, provide CMS with greater authority to revoke Medicare billing privileges for providers. We all know that CMS is kind of the gatekeeper to the Medicare program, preventing unqualified and potentially fraudulent individuals and entities from being able to enroll in and inappropriately bill Medicare. Well, they finalized this new fee schedule and the proposal to modify a Medicare enrollment revocation basis for non-compliant billing. Among these policies was a proposal related to provider enrollment to increase CMS flexibility to address periods of abusive billing that, though comparatively brief, have or could have harmed the Medicare program. CMS explained that although it previously could revoke providers and suppliers for non-compliant billing under 42 CFR, Section 424.535.A8, the prior wording of some of the factors in the in paragraphs hampered its ability to do so. This regulation permits CMS to revoke a provider or supplier's Medicare enrollment for non-compliant billing or the abuse of billing privileges. Notably, the prior version of the regulation required CMS to take into account the reason for any claim denies, denials the length of time over which any pattern or practice of submitting claims that failed to meet the requirements occurred, and how long the provider or supplier had been enrolled in Medicare in order to determine whether a provider or supplier was engaged in an abuse of billing privileges. The recently finalized regulation removes those three considerations. The revisions permit it to focus on the percentage of denials within subsets of the providers or suppliers' claim submissions rather than across the entire universe of claims that were denied during the time frame under consideration. CMS described the prior regulation as a framework that inhibits its capacity to target brief periods involving a significant percentage of denied claims because the regulation has been interpreted to require the percentage be weighed against claim denials over the entire period of a provider or supplier's enrollment. By restricting the scope of denial percentages to a shorter time frame, CMS hopes that it could address non-compliant periods 
by restricting the scope of denial percentages to a shorter time frame, this reflected its view that even a comparatively short time frame of improper billing can threaten the trust funds. CMS considerations in determining whether revocation is appropriate now include the percentage of submitted claims that were denied during the period under consideration, whether the provider or supplier has any history of final adverse actions and the nature of any such actions. This goes to show you that the past matters. The type of billing, noncompliance, and the specific facts surrounding said noncompliance, and lastly, any other information regarding the provider or supplier's specific circumstances that CMS deems relevant to its determination. CMS recognized that even if a period of erroneous claim submissions reflected no nefarious intent by the provider, the provider still failed to comply with Medicare billing rules, which presents a risk to the Medicare program. On a quick other note, this does apply to the defenses in the Social Security Act, which allows providers who think they should be reimbursed to get reimbursed because there is no intent. This flies in the face of that. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, and famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. It's Monday, it's March 14th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Compliant Medicare payment depends on understanding which spinal procedure has been performed and whether or not that procedure is on the Medicare inpatient-only list. But making the correct decision can be difficult. Fortunately, an exclusive RAC Monitor webcast will help to reinforce your ability to know which spinal procedure has been performed and whether it should be categorized as inpatient or outpatient. Register now to attend Spinal Procedures, Know what's on the 2022 IPO list. That webcast is tomorrow, Tuesday, March 15th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. As I say every Monday at the same time, what could be risky now? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of irrational numbers. Now, mathophiles know that an irrational number is a number that can't be expressed as the ratio of two integers, say perhaps 3.141519 to pick a number at random. But in this case, I'm using the term more loosely to refer to irrational pricing decisions. So I think last week alone, I might've had five different conversations with five different clients that go something like this. We wanna have low prices for our patients who either don't have insurance, who have a high deductible plan but we wanna be able to charge insurance plans that we don't contract with a higher price. So we'd like to charge cash paying customers maybe the Medicare rate or 1.25 times the Medicare rate, but we wanna charge non-contracted insurance companies two or three times the Medicare rate. Can we do that? Now, first, I wanna note that can is a complicated word in this context. In most situations, there's not gonna be an explicit law that categorically prohibits the practice. So I can't say you can't do it. However, there might be significant consequences to the decision. 
So I want to reframe, can we do this, into what happens if we do this? And while I can't give a dispositive answer, because I know organizations that have done that without facing consequences, I want to clearly state that I don't much care for this practice, and let me explain why. When a patient or an insurance company purchases a service from you in the absence of a contract, the law creates an implied contract. Basically, you agree to charge, and the purchaser agrees to pay, a reasonable amount for the service. If the two parties are unable to agree on what that reasonable rate is, a court will wind up making that decision. How a the way a judge would determine that rate, you know, is they're going to have to pick something, right? They could consider pricing surveys or other data, but one obvious fact I would expect a judge to consider is the amount of money that a patient would pay walking in off the street to obtain the service. So if I can walk in with a high deductible plan and pay 150% of Medicare, why should a different patient pay twice that just because they have a different insurance program? It seems completely unfair or, dare I say, irrational. So having inconsistent pricing like that isn't going to be a criminal violation, but it might well get you on TV. Moreover, if the insurance company being charged a higher rate opts to challenge your policy, I think that the odds that they succeed are quite high. The bottom line is I strongly encourage my clients to have a rational pricing structure. One of the best ways to do that, use every power you've got to avoid a contract that features a deep discount off of billed charges. The fact that so many contracts feature 30, 40, or even 50% discounts off of a billed charge creates a system where the amount on the bill is functionally meaningless. That plays right into the hands of any insurance company seeking to challenge the amount you billed is unreasonable. They'll say, hey, the price on the bill is totally unconnected to the amount that's actually collected. So Chuck, today is 314 or Pi Day, with Pi being the most common example of an irrational number. I thought about using Bye Bye Miss American Pi, it's the 50th anniversary, but there's just hard to work driving your Chevy to the levee into this segment. But on the soundtrack of the movie American Pie, there's a song by Tonic, You Wanted More. And if you find yourself in a situation where a patient or insurance company is complaining that you wanted more, your ability to defend yourself will be much stronger if all of the patients are paying about the same rate, regardless of their insurance status. bottom line, Chuck, keep your numbers rational. Back to you, and happy Pi Day. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has the Monitor Monday listener survey, and good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck. Coming off another week working inside the hospital walls in my case management world, I have another topic to discuss related to President Biden's initiative. I just can't be done with it yet. Specifically, Biden's pledge to provide the country with better nursing homes. I am sure we all remember the horrific news of elderly residents dying of COVID during our first wave of the pandemic. 
By the end of 2021, approximately 200,000 long-term care residents and staff members have died of COVID, which equates to approximately 23% of all of our COVID deaths just far. The focus on quality ratings and educating our communities on post-acute services had started before COVID when CMS began publicly reporting skilled nursing facilities star rating in late 2018. Then in 2019 came CMS's ruling and updates for discharge planning requirements to include quality measures and ratings as part of patient choice process for the post-acute placement. Under value-based arrangements, many hospitals and health systems started working in collaboratives across the continuum to elevate performance and help improve quality of care for their patients going to post-acute. However, the level of mortality with COVID is requiring a little bit more muscle. The Biden administration intends to conduct research this year regarding the minimum required staffing levels at nursing homes and potentially roll out mandates for all facilities shortly thereafter. CMS plans to require the phasing out of shared rooms, particularly addressing facilities that have three or more residents in one room. They are planning to beef up their penalties, reporting requirements, and scrutiny of nursing homes, especially those that are owned by private equity firms. In fact, private equity firms that own poorly performing nursing homes could face significant penalties, including permanent legal implications. The need to improve the care of our elderly is in dire need. However, as we continue to face significant staffing shortages across the hospital systems, I'm unsure where the staff is going to come from for the nursing homes. Patients are sitting in hospitals waiting for days to open for a, for a bed to open up for a post-acute facility because of limited staffing. With limited bed availability also has come an ample supply of patient referrals for top choice facilities. The unintended consequence is that facilities can pick the the best patients from the pile of referrals, which means that those who are more complex or underinsured sit in the hospital as unlikely candidates for placement. Case managers are working with patients and families to send referrals out to outlying communities and across regions to see who is willing to accept a patient to free up a hospital bed. Often the choices available for placements are not five-star facilities. Imagine the physician and or the case manager telling the family and the patient that they are ready to discharge to a two-star or a one-star facility because those are the only ones available that can take their insurance and have a bed available. This is a conversation that we have all too often. And thus the patient and the family request to stay in the hospital where they can, where they assume that they can feel safer and often more cared for until another facility bed becomes available or they can figure out how to go home with home care services. So I ask our listeners today, how many of you think that the skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes will be prepared to increase staffing ratios for patient care by the end of this year? Highly likely. Likely, neutral, unlikely, or highly unlikely. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Tiffany. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Money Legislative Update. 
The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. As you mentioned at the top of the hour, Chuck, Congress passed a $1.5 trillion spending bill on Thursday last week with bipartisan support. That's right, bipartisan support. Biden signed the bill on Friday, and the package not only keeps the government's doors open for another six months, it also gives assistance to Ukraine and includes some health care items, which we're going to talk about now. Most striking, however, are the health care issues that are not addressed in the package. The omnibus package does include a $1 billion in funding for Mr. Biden's cancer moonshot and for research into Alzheimer's. It also includes increased funding for opioid and health disparities research. And HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, received $1 billion for programs to improve maternal and child health. In his State of the Union at the beginning of March, Biden outlined a plan to address the nation's mental health crisis, and that initiative got a boost of half a million dollars. The package did not make any of the pandemic telehealth waivers permanent, but it did extend those waivers to continue for another five months after whenever the public health emergency ends. Those waivers included loosening originating site restrictions and allowing audio-only telecommunications. So when will the public health emergency end? No one knows for sure, but here's some breadcrumbs. The current PHE is set to end next month, April 16th, but HHS has promised they'll give the industry a two-month warning before it actually ends, which would certainly put us past April 16th. So best guess, if things continually to continue to get better in terms of COVID, the PHE may end as early as July. Add the five months that this spending package gives to telehealth waivers, and that puts those waivers ending in December 2022. That gives Congress a little more time to make the telehealth waivers permanent. Now, let's talk about the health care issues that were not included in the spending package. First, it did not address looming Medicare sequestration cuts, which were suspended at the beginning of the pandemic. Absent any other congressional action, Payments from Medicare will be decreased by 1% beginning next month and 2% in July. Congress may take the issue up in a separate action, but it's unlikely they will do so before that first set of cuts takes place next month. There were also no COVID relief funds in the package. Over the past week, COVID relief was taken out of the package because there was disagreement on how the funds should be paid. The proposed way to pay for COVID relief in the package was to take the money from any unspent COVID funds that had been given given to the states through earlier relief packages. So that's a bit like, you know, when your mom says a week after Halloween, if you haven't eaten your candy yet, she's going to distribute it to all the other kids. In B.C. and in state houses across the country, some thought that was unfair, but others thought that there's still too much uneaten candy or COVID relief money in the house. Although money for COVID issues did not make it into this particular package, Congress does expect to take it up in a standalone bill later this spring. Chuck, note that for COVID relief relief targeted specifically for healthcare and providers, as of last week, all of those COVID funds have been spent or are already allocated. 
Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. So I asked our listeners, how many of you think that skilled nursing facilities will be prepared to increase staffing ratios for patient care by the end of this year? And the results were just my same concerns as well. The majority of our listeners, 42% and 45% said unlikely and highly unlikely. And I would have to agree. I think this is going to be a tough one to figure out how they're going to implement and meet those ratios in order for taking care of our patients. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, for your survey. Coming up, famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman and this $260 million whistleblower settlement. That story is next. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference in Austin, Texas, is April 11th through the 13th at the Hyatt Regency. Make note, the early bird rate ends tomorrow, March 15th. This event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to register. And remember, the special early bird rate ends tomorrow, March 15th. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there's been a $260 million settlement in a whistleblower lawsuit against a giant pharmaceutical. Here now to report this major story is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Hey, Mary, the settlement is big, but also the whistleblower had a big corporate job. Is that right? That is right. In his State of the Union address, President Biden joined a long line of presidents taking a stand against out-of-control drug prices by denouncing the high price of insulin. Out-of-control prescription drug prices is a problem that affects all of us. For the least fortunate among us, many life-saving medications have become out of reach altogether. Patching this gaping healthcare hole may be the one government priority with nearly universal support, especially these days with COVID still on the prowl and moonshot cancer cures hopefully around the quarter. Keeping future treatments affordable and thus accessible to everyone must be part of the game plan. While figuring out the best way to get there continues to confound us, one approach that often gets overlooked is simply enforcing the laws already on the books. That is just what the government did recently with its $260 million smackdown of UK and St. Louis-based pharmaceutical company Mallinckrodt for allegedly sidestepping the Medicaid drug rebate statute. The law generally requires drug companies to rebate state Medicaid programs for price increases that outpace inflation, benchmarked to when the drug was first approved, or 1990 later. It is one of several laws Congress has enacted over the years to keep drug prices in check, most importantly for those least able to afford them. 
It is a clear and common sense approach to sheltering our most vulnerable from unfettered price increases, particularly when regular market forces cannot get the job done. Malincroft apparently did not see it that way with its octard injection-based gel used to treat a variety of conditions, including MS, infantile spasms, and allergic conditions in the eye. In 2001, when another drug company, QuestCore, which Malincroft later acquired, secured the rights to manufacture and sell the product, it cost only $50 a vial. By 2013, the price skyrocketed to $28,000 per vial, a more than 50,000% increase, all during a period when annual inflation was only 2%. According to the government, it was not the rebate program that failed. It was Malincroft cheating the system by pegging rebates not to the drug's relatively modest 1990 pricing, but to its excessive 2013 pricing when the FDA approved the drug for treating additional diseases. Treating the drug as quote-unquote new allowed the company to improperly sidestep its massive pre-2013 price increases and shave hundreds of millions of dollars off what it owed in Medicaid rebate payments. This kind of gamesmanship may be particularly tempting for the many drug companies working to repurpose existing drugs to find the next great cure. That is apparently what scores of companies are doing on the COVID front, screening thousands of drugs approved decades ago for the potential to fight the coronavirus. If some of these old drugs are ultimately approved to treat coronavirus or cancer or some other newly emergent disease, the manufacturer may feel justified in skirting Medicaid rebates as recompense for creating the life-saving breakthrough and the costs incurred in getting there. Any company contemplating this path, however, should proceed with caution. With its action against Malincroft, the government has thrown down the gauntlet, challenging this pricing approach as a violation of both the Medicaid rebate law and the False Claims Act. Notably, it was a whistleblower, James Landolt, the company's director of internal controls, who first uncovered the alleged pricing misconduct. He filed suit under the key TAM provisions of the False Claims Act, which allows private individuals to sue on behalf of the government and potentially share in up to 30% of any recovery. Mr. Landolt will receive roughly $25 million from the federal government's portion of the recovery and millions more from the individual state recoveries. There is certainly room for more legislation to ease the pain of runaway drug prices. Until we get there, however, the Medicaid rebate statute offers at least one potential safeguard to keep pricing in check. So do whistleblowers. With cancer and COVID still very much a threat, the need for both government and whistleblower vigilance is critical to ensure the companies so critical to our health and well-being play by all the rules to keep pharmaceutical fraud at bay. Only then can we be sure the drugs we buy are safe and effective and all the life-changing elixirs, hopefully just around the bend, remain available to everyone. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. I was playing whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law offices of Constantine Cannon. And I want to thank you all very much for being with us today. It's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And I want to thank our panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Mary Inman, whom you just heard. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. 
Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.